Welcome to another episode of the Tom Schumer Podcast, and happy World Teachers Day. Now more than ever, it's my hope that society as a whole comes to appreciate all that teachers do in dedication to the success and happiness of everyone's children. I know it sounds cliche, but we know education is what creates a civil and just society, and teachers are on the front lines making that happen every day, so thank you. And thanks to you, the listeners, for choosing to hang out again this week. If you like what you hear, please spread the word, subscribe, and rate the podcast. As always, I'd love to hear from you. Your feedback, your input, suggestions for interview guests, possible segments, topics, and how to generally improve the podcast would be greatly appreciated. And also, of course, your topics and questions for Assessment Corner. You can either tweet me personally, at Tom Shimmer, or the show's Twitter handle, at Tom Shimmer Pod. You can also email me, the email for the show is tomshimmerpod at gmail.com. I've got part two of my interview with best-selling author and speaker Anthony Muhammad. Anthony and I explore the racial equity question specifically as it relates to schools. Now, if you've yet to listen to part one, that was in last week's pod, and I would really encourage you to go back and listen to that as well. After that, we'll have In the News, which is going to include a story out of Texas about how first and second year teachers are handling remote learning and also a story out of England about the debate there about how to best include black history in their curriculum. It's 2020, so the news is dominated by stories about the pandemic and racial equity. We know that. Assessment Corner includes a question about final exams and whether they still have utility in our more modern sort of curriculum and instructional experience. And as always, we finish up with today's Tweets of the Week, where I'm going to have two great follows for you as well. So that's the plan. Let's get to it. Part two of my conversation with Anthony Muhammad is coming up shortly. First, don't at me, but I've got something to say about assessment. And that is that investing in your assessment literacy is the most efficient and effective professional investment any educator can make. Now, I know that sounds self-serving, as assessment is my primary area of expertise, and of course, my work in assessment has completely and significantly changed my career. However, long before I became an author, a speaker, and a consultant, assessment really did transform my viewpoint of education. This assessment journey began for me 17 years ago, when I was a vice principal in a middle school. Shout out to School District 67 in the Penticton Summerland area where I spent 12 years of my career. I would say the same thing about assessment even if I hadn't left my job at the school district because even in those early years of my assessment evolution, I began to see everything within the school differently. It changed how I taught, it transformed the professional conversations within the school, and it definitely impacted the substance of my leadership. Now, some might say, well, Tom, aren't relationships more important than that? Isn't that social and emotional connection more important? Well, to that, I would say two things. First, I agree that relationships are critical and are essential in the work that we do. But two, I would say assessment is relationship building. We teach the whole child and there's no separate assessment silo. We don't build relationships over here and then assess over there. A real, authentic teacher-student relationship emerges from the atmosphere around assessment. Assessment is not just this clinical exercise in number crunching. 
It is a very human experience that is going to elicit an emotional reaction from your students. The only question is whether that student's emotional reaction is going to be productive or counterproductive. Do they lean in or do they lean out? An authentic relationship moves past the periphery. And of course, we need to be kind and empathetic and equitable and cordial, friendly, etc. And take an interest in our students, right? But at the center of their experience is their learning. And nothing will more authentically build your relationships than how you handle their learning. When we use assessment to primarily improve learning, when grading practices are fair, equitable, reasonable, and serve only to judge quality against established criteria, and when assessment is no longer used as leverage, then students will trust us and begin to show their vulnerability as learners. I mean, one of the questions we could ask ourselves is, is assessment something that increases or decreases anxiety? I mean, all of this is easier to navigate with a grounding in assessment principles and practices. Assessment is the engine that drives so many practices and processes that schools are working toward establishing as professional norms. Now, as we run down the list, you're going to see how assessment is so deeply connected to so many things that we are trying to implement in schools. Let's start with professional learning communities. The four essential questions that guide the work of a PLC reveal how critical sound assessment fluency and capacity is in creating that cohesive approach to student achievement. Without the critical components of sound assessment practices, we're not going to have the necessary clarity on what students are expected to understand and be able to do, how we'll know whether or not they understand it or can do it, how to respond when they're not there yet, and how to extend for those who are already there and ready for the next level of sophistication. Successful PLCs and the collaborative teams within those need reliable information, especially from common assessments, to fulfill their mission of creating school communities that are responsive to the needs of all learners. With limited assessment fluency and capacity, the work of a PLC is at best clumsy, and at worst, it can be counterproductive. Let's move to RTI. The process of RTI, that is the development of a full continuum of support, hinges on sound assessment practices at all three tiers. At tier one, often referred to as the level of prevention, sound assessment practices create effective and efficient teaching and learning environments. Now, sometimes students are in need of more intensive support because they have unique learning challenges, but sometimes students emerge as unnecessarily needing more intensive support simply because the initial design of the instruction and assessment was less than favorable. Effective and accurate assessment practices ensure that the decisions regarding the potential next layer of intervention are based on reliable information. Now, success at Tier 2, which is typically a more targeted group-based type of intervention, requires a more precise and sophisticated level of assessment capacity. Here, assessment serves as specific progress monitoring as on both ends of the continuum, really. Assessment results may indicate a successful trajectory and therefore the potential to discontinue the more intensive interventions, or results may indicate that progress is limited and there's a need to employ a tier three approach. And at tier three, the interventions, of course, are more personalized, assessment is more frequent, and monitoring is more intense. So reliable assessment results are critical in knowing whether the individualized plan is meeting the specific needs of the learner. So at all three tiers of RTI, assessment plays a crucial role. Let's talk about differentiation. The process of differentiating instruction, or even simply providing differentiated opportunities, also relies on sound assessment information. 
assessing for differentiation is primarily anchored on assessing for readiness. So we can take advantage of the instructional opportunities aligned to where students are along their learning continuums and to know which of our students are ready for the next level of sophistication. That's not exclusively about readiness, but readiness is a big part of it. We may also assess for interest level. Providing meaningful opportunities through differentiation includes both formal and informal moments of assessment that fuel those decisions. So again, assessment is a critical part of differentiation. What about our unique learners? Those students with special needs and those for whom the language of instruction is still developing, our ELs. Determining goals, monitoring progress, and making instructional maneuvers for our unique learners is contingent upon accurate evidence that either confirms that the plan is working or that some minor, maybe even major adjustments are necessary. Without assessment, we're guessing. With inaccurate assessments, we're making poor decisions and likely spinning our wheels in terms of maximizing our support. I mean, it goes without saying that feedback and grading are clearly connected to assessments, so we won't spend any time on that. What about student investment? A ubiquitous frustration is that students aren't more invested in their own learning. And while the self-regulation of learning is not a brand new concept, the collective emphasis and prioritization here in the 21st century is somewhat new. I mean, students aren't born with the innate ability to monitor their own learning or to poignantly reflect upon their results after the fact. Someone needs to teach them that. And the end game of assessment literacy is not our own fluency, capacity, and expertise. The end game is to actually teach our students how to do this on their own behalves. So to help students become self-assessors, the teachers need to collectively have a level of assessment literacy so they can nurture and develop that within their students. What about social competence? I mean, we do teach the whole child, right? And it's important that we help students develop and we nurture and we help them grow in those social skills and attributes that are going to help them be successful, not just today, but continuing through school and beyond. Things like responsibility or work ethic or respect or empathy or all the ones we can think of. Now, we can't, on the one hand, claim to be developing the whole child and these very important attributes and skills, but then not assess them. I mean, just imagine we make all of these claims about Oh, we're developing the whole child and, and we're, we're developing these kids to have work ethic and responsibility and all those things. And then a parent comes up to us and says, I hear what you're saying in developing the whole child and respect and responsibility and work ethic and all that. How's my daughter doing with those social skills? And then our response is, oh, well, we don't assess those. Really? I mean, at some point, if we're going to make these claims about what we're nurturing and developing, we're going to have to assess them. doesn't mean we have to test them in the traditional sense, but we have to assess them. What about 21st century skills? Critical competencies like critical thinking, collaboration, communication, and yes, even creativity. Again, we can't make these grandiose claims about developing you know, critical thinkers for the 21st century and then respond by saying, oh, but we don't assess those. I mean, I've heard people say things like, oh, we don't assess those critical competencies, we just develop them. What? How can you develop anything in any one of those aspects without assessing it? I mean, how exactly would a coach develop her athletes without assessing her athletes? It just doesn't make any sense. 
Assessment is, of course, not the sexiest part of our job, even if there is such a thing. Especially when you mistakenly reduce assessment to just filling in spreadsheets and utilizing algorithms. Developing our assessment literacy is critical for teachers and administrators and district-level leaders. Leaders must be able to have credible, meaningful conversations about assessment if they're going to initiate or sustain any long-term transformation of assessment and grading practices. Assessment is the engine that makes everything go. And that makes assessment the most efficient and effective professional investment any educator can make. Before we get to part two with Anthony Muhammad, I just want to again apologize for the sound quality. Uh, we had some technical glitches in my microphone when we were recording the interview, but Anthony's sound comes through clear. So let's get to part two, racial equity in schools. I, I do want to shift to talking specifically about schools and um, just really uh, focused on, um, you know, the work. I, I just absolutely loved uh, the book, Overcoming the Achievement Trap Gap, uh, or Gap Trap, I should say. Um, and as you've written many times, and, and as you wrote and said many times, as you wrote about in the book, um, we claim to be these kind of egalitar egalitarian systems in schools in our mission statements, but we behave more like meritocracies on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm -hmm. So how do we change that? Is that, um, is it that some or many uh, white educators are in denial about how much of a meritocracy schools are? Or like, how do we change that perspective from what's on paper to what happens in, in the day-to-day -day school experience? Absolutely. Well, schools are microcosms of the greater society. Um, typically, what the values are outside of school exists within school, but schools are unique for this reason. And Dr. Dan Lordy addressed this in his book, uh, School Teacher of Sociological Study, that we have the disadvantage of never experiencing the schooling process outside of the traditional sense. We enroll as kindergartners, we go through K-12 education, go to university, have it reinforced, and then go right back to the same system we just left. So educators historically have never gotten an opportunity to make a critical analysis of how we do schooling. We're indoctrinated and socialized from day one. Lordy went on to identify that the vast majority of us who go into education as a profession had personal success as a student. So the current system was beneficial for the people who are entrusted to change the system. So I love his line, it's the famous line. He said, it's, it's, it's illogical to expect a group of people who personally benefited from a system to become the catalyst for changing the system. So I would even erase the notion of white educators. It's educators in general. general. The modality of school as a competition, a meritocratic race for acknowledgement, and acknowledgement is typically based upon assimilation, how quickly you learn something, following directions, being passively engaged and uh, 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 obedient to rules, policies. That work for black teachers, white teachers, Asian teachers, First Nations teachers, it doesn't make a difference. Um, so it's really, when it comes from a school perspective, that uh, educators become almost agents of a, an agenda that they didn't sign up for, but are 
as the Russians would call them, useful idiots in some cases. <laughs> we end up carrying on an agenda that we didn't produce. That good schooling are kids who learn it the quickest, who, who regurgitate it the way that we say is, 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 is good, uh, are obedient to policies and rules. Uh, Doug Reeves, I think, calls it schoolsmanship. So we say because it sounds good, and this is how our society is. If you read the American Constitution, or you meet, read the Canadian uh, uh, Constitution, nobody could argue with the lofty ideals in those. So we love in our society to speak of lofty ideas and ideals, but not live up to them. I called it in the book, Functional Hypocrisy. Right. Because if we were actually to live up to it, we would have to, we'd have to acknowledge some very unpleasant realities. Liberty and justice for all, and the preamble to the American, uh, or the uh, Declaration of Independence, that all men and women are created equal, or just all men are created equal. At the same time, women were marginalized, and, people, and, and, and Native Americans were being slaughtered, and descendants of Africans were being enslaved. They had the nerve to say that. Well, I'm not just throwing off on the framers of the American Constitution. Schools do the same thing. We want every child to be a lifelong learner in a world of rainbows and unicorns and Skittles. And, but the way that we start to address that is that we have to do what Jim Collins said. We have to seek and confront the brutal realities, the brutal facts. Are I don't we, think most people would. Uh, yeah, no. I don't think are, most people would disagree that that those ideas are, are 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 ethical ideas. A good leader would make people confront the reality. Are we actually living what we say? So my argument is, we live in that comfortable neutral zone between who we say we we are, we want to be, and who we really are. So my my one of my main points in chapter one of the book, overcoming the achievement gap trap, either live up to it or stop saying it. Right. It's interesting over the years, how many people, you know, look at, look at that, that mission statement work or the, 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 the constitutions, if you will, that we create for our schools. And, uh, you know, when it's finished and it sounds great, it just gets tucked away or it gets, it's, it's a nice placard on the wall, but are we actually living mm -hmm. that, that mission? Do you think we're any closer though in 2020? Do you think we're, you wrote about the idea of the difference between the philosophical commitment to equity and the practical commitment to equity. Do you think we're any closer in 2020 to aligning those two? Uh, is there is there reason for hope in, in 2020 that we are getting closer to aligning yeah. those two ideas? Yes and no. Okay. In the greater society, I would say no. The greater school. Um, because I said the ideology of white supremacy permeates every institution in the post-colonial world. And um, the American uh, policy, No Child Left Behind, uh, which is followed by Every Student Succeeds Act, really in its inception was the redistribution of real estate wealth in a, in a form of covert resegregation. Testing schools on one standardized test, which favor those who have been socialized in academic English, who've been exposed to certain opportunities from one cultural lens and basing a school's worth on one standardized test scores and assigning so many privileges and sanctions associated with how a school performs.
it has decimated certain communities. Yeah. Flight, the uh, loss of real estate value and, 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 and community wealth shifted to certain centers. The American Educational Research Association called No Child Left Behind a sophisticated form of Jim Crow. Wow. You just can't use the dog whistle today of white and colored, but you can say an A school, a B school, a C. And we have a profile of what those schools are like. And the assessment was fixed for certain students to do well on that. So in that vantage point with the residual effect of those types of very damaging policies, we're seeing inner city schools at a third their capacity, struggling to even um, uh, uh, staff their schools with certified teachers. We have a tremendous teacher shortage in the United States. And guess which districts are, are, are bearing the brunt yeah. of the teacher shortage? I'm working with districts time right now with 40, 50% long-term subs. Wow. Because of the decimation of the flight of students and the effect of the, the negative effect on real estate values, which had an impact on their school funding. Money follows students. So when you lose students, you lose funding. You lose tax base. You lose funding. So I'm seeing a lot of sincere people who want to do the right things, who systemically their cupboards have been raided and they're dealing with bare bones. Yeah. So I don't think, I think philosophically with a lot of the work um, with people like Glenn Singleton, uh, Gloria Ladson Billings, uh, the work of others, I think we're understanding the problem better. So I'm optimistic that people are more intellectually in tune with what causes inequality. But from a practical standpoint, we are, we are much worse off today than we were even 20 years ago. I think about some of the things that principals I work with have to deal with that I wasn't dealing with in the same types of communities 15, 20 years ago. And I just, I, my heart breaks for them. They want to do the right things, but their cupboards are bare. It's always interesting when you look at the way that, that policies are framed, they're always framed in, in ways that are on the surface inarguable, right? You talk about no child left behind. Who can argue yeah. with that conceptually? Yeah. Uh, the, the idea of school choice, uh, you know, it sounds on the surface like, you know, empowerment of parents, mm -hmm. et cetera. But we, you know, you start to look deeper into some of those policies and you start to recognize their, their, the underbelly, if you will, of, of some of those practices yeah. and some of those policies and that it reveals. Um, I'm thinking about uh, page 67 in the book, you, you write, and I'm going to quote you here, it becomes problematic, quote, it becomes problematic when members of any community view their heritage, culture, or norms as the standard that all should subscribe to and use their influence to dominate people who may be of a different background or income level, especially when they publicly claim that equality is important. And it reminded me, end quote, that reminded me of, of something I read in um, How to Be an Anti-Racist, Ibram X. Kendi's book, where he wrote this idea that whoever creates the norm creates the hierarchy and positions their own race mm -hmm. and class at the top of the hierarchy. So I'm wondering, mm -hmm. is, is the root cause of so much of the racial inequity that happens in schools or exists in schools, whether, whether that be inequity around student achievement or whether that be mm -hmm. around student discipline, mm -hmm. 
Is that caused by the fact, do you think, by the fact that we have narrowly defined success in schools through a white Eurocentric kind of middle class lens? Is that, is that where some of that comes from? We define success through that lens and then we place that at the top of the hierarchy? That's, yeah. That's where the vast majority comes from. Yeah. Um, it's the manifestation of neo-colonialism and neo-imperialism. The objective of colonialism and imperialism was a handful of Western European countries uh, because of advancements in uh, weaponry, use that innovation to subdue 90 plus percent of the world and replace their language, replace their religion, replace their culture. So what has now become considered as normal is just the residual effect of colonialism and imperialism. So you go to Quebec, they speak French. That's not the native language of that part of the world. The Cree people are from there. You go to Vancouver, um, English is the, that's not the indigenous language of that part of North America. That's, that's the influence of the English. You go to Mexico, they speak Spanish. So we've been so involved with colonialism and imperialism for so long that we forget that what we, how we act, how we talk, how we pray, how we think, how we look, are all viewed. It's, it seems so long ago, we don't have a, a reference for it. I wasn't there when Vasco da Gama and Magellan and all those folks were you know, terrorizing the world. Yeah. Uh, but we live the residual effect of that. Uh, even, uh, I have a, a house in Mexico. They, they, they think the Spanish is their culture. That's not their culture. That's the culture of the, uh, of the colonizer. So we subconsciously act in ways that we don't realize that almost everything we do consciously or subconsciously is shaped by the dominance for hundreds of years of a handful of Western European powers uh, from how we dress, how we speak, even in Texas uh, recently, the, the, the board of education who reinforced their policy against dreadlocks because they said they have high expectations. Who gets to define that dreadlocks are low expectations? Yeah. Um, um, so colonialism and the, 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 the stain of imperialism affects us so deeply that we don't even really recognize it. And it just becomes routine. And it's only when you become aware and you start to reclaim some of those things that it appears problematic. Uh, but people tend to like um, protest as long as it fits their construct. I mean, look at some of the reactions to George Floyd and, and Breonna Taylor. It said, we understand, but you got to protest this way. You got to be angry this way. But then view the Boston Tea Party as somehow something progressive. They were freedom fighters. So even protest and response to oppression is shaped by the agenda of the oppressor. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a hell of a pickle to be yeah, in. No kidding. <laughs> the, the idea that, uh, that, you know, uh, you can protest, but you need to protest my way. That, that assertion yes. just seems to, to permeate, yeah. you know, the, you know, the, 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 the ethos of our society, which, you know, we don't like the way you're protesting and therefore yeah. it discredits the movement. Uh, it, it doesn't, but I mean, I think that's the viewpoint. Yeah. I'm interested and, and, in, and, yeah, go one, ahead. One point yeah, 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 of course. You know, but then the people who tend to 
speak for the dominant part of society, they don't take on that same ideology and they don't even accept any critique. When George W. Bush in his response tonight said, we're going to preeminently strike this axis of evil, that that was okay because this is, you mess with me and you don't mess with me. But when you're fighting for the same freedom or the a, a, a semblance of respect, then preeminent strike is called terrorism. It's called uh, 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 being a thug or social. So it's the fact that people who are oppressed even listen and play by those rules is amazing to me. Yeah. So if you're my oppressor, you don't have the right to tell me how I, how I secure my own liberation because you don't ask permission when you do it. There was no silent protest after 9-11. Afghanistan was bombed back into the Stone Age. Right. It's, yeah, I mean, even even the use of, of that coded language, you know, thug versus freedom fighter, uh, you know, we, we, we just have to be so aware of the power of language and the, and the, and the I guess the, the inferences that, that people draw from the terminology that's used. Going back to the uh, the way we define success in in the book, you highlight Elise Trumbull and her colleagues' work around the differences between how cultures define success. So I'm thinking about the fact that if we are going to continue to expand this work in schools, we're going to have to rethink how we define success and broaden the view of what success means Mm -hmm. beyond that white Eurocentric kind of viewpoint. So could you talk a little bit about, in the book you highlight that the way white culture defines success versus how cultures of color define success, uh, you you draw some differences between the two in the book. Could you you talk a little bit about that and expand on, if we're going to expand the definition of success, what might we be looking for? Okay. And I want to, to reinforce that um, there's nothing wrong with European culture. There's nothing wrong with white culture. It's just not the world's only culture. Right. So when you look at success through a monolithic lens, it's not an either or proposition. Mm-hmm. There are things that communities of color can learn from white society, European society. Um, and some of the things that they value that tend to translate into school are individual accomplishment. It's the very European that, that my personal success is my definition of purpose. Also, in, in the same uh, uh, resource or reference, you put, she made a lot of parallels to East Asian culture. And one of the reasons that East Asian immigrants tend to have success in Western schools, in Western culture, because a lot of their, their, their core values are similar. Individual success in European culture is more important than collective success. In a lot of communities, tropical communities in, in particular, group success is more important than individual success. Individual success in many cultures is looked at as insulting to our collective success. Um, so in, in, in a lot of African cultures, if I stick out as a show-off, it seems I'm, it look like I'm being shown show off. Our group success is more important than individual. Um, even down to the way that we advocate. If you look at uh, in, in Latino cultures, uh, in Spanish, the word for teacher is maestro. Maestro in Spanish doesn't even translate into teacher. 
it means master. It means there's a deep respect for the person delivering. So they, 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 they surrender their, to their tutelage. Well, in, in, in European culture, advocacy and lobbying for an advantage for your child is considered being a parent, being a good parent. I want to make sure my child gets into the advanced placement courses. I'm going to talk to the superintendent. I'm going to meet with the director. In Latino culture, to even question the authority or the direction of the maestro or the maestra is considered disrespectful. If you go to a lot of southwestern states in the United States, the hands-off approach that a lot of Latino parents take, they'll say, well, they don't care about education. Through their cultural lens, the fact that they give you their child and they tell their child to follow you, obey you, in their culture is the deepest level of respect. We're accustomed to the, the helicopter or the, the tiger mom who's at the school advocating for their child to get the advantage. Where in Latino culture, that's considered supremely disrespectful and it is considered um, unethical to do so. So I just tried to in that chapter so that when other cultural uh, behavior becomes apparent and it's different, don't assume that it's bad. It's just different. Right. And don't assume that people don't care because their view of success or social norms are different. It's, it's so often we, we uh, try to, uh, you know, when I look back at my own you know, experience in history as an administrator, I'm sure I can't point to a specific time, but I'm sure there was a time where I interpreted, you know, parental behavior, for example, through that, that lens, which, you know, I defined what they were doing through my lens, not mm -hmm. through being culturally understanding of, of, and responsive to, to where they, they were coming from in terms of that, that sort of deferential attitude toward the school versus, you know, why aren't they more involved or why aren't they, because you're right, we become accustomed to the pounding on the desks and the demands that, that may, may come mm -hmm. to us. Um, and, one, and one other area I ahead. wanted to just highlight real yeah. quick uh, that is huge for teachers. Passive engagement in the learning process is a very European concept. You listen, you memorize, or you, you learn, and then you, 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 you explain what you learn. A lot of that is developed in a lot of the social norms of Europe, like the Catholic Church. Impromptu engagement is not encouraged. It's all scripted. You go to the opera. You, impromptu applause in the opera is highly frowned upon. Mm -hmm. The orchestra. So in Western European culture, permit passive engagement and permission to engage are a big part of the, the, the totality of European culture. If you go to a lot of tropical cultures, particularly what we call tribes or ethnic groups. Uh, uh, reciprocal energy is a part of their engagement process. If you've ever witnessed an African-American pastor in a church, the engagement is very fluid. The West African principle is if you're speaking, presenting, dancing, providing some sort of service for me, it's considered inhumane not to validate positively what you're doing. It's not considered disruptive. If I do that in a Catholic ceremony, I'm breaking protocol and norm. But in the African-American religious tradition, that's considered validating. So in America, when kids come to school from that, that norm, where the school has, has, has institutionalized passive engagement, they're accused of being 
disrespectful or loud or wild when they're norm, they're really being respectful when you're speaking and they say, Oh, I know that happened to me. That's how they've been socialized. And even African-American teachers have learned from their experience to turn their culture off when they come to school. So it's I'm, interesting. I just yeah, no, make point. no, I appreciate that. It, it's interesting. You know, earlier you had mentioned, you know, there's nothing wrong with European culture. There's nothing wrong with white culture. Is that, is that maybe something that is misunderstood is that for some people, they mistakenly think that this is a, a binary choice, that it's one or the other versus an expansion of what we mean by success and allowing for a, a broader base definition of, of what it means to be successful in school, it, that it's not this sort of binary or polarized choice between it's either this or that. Is that, is that maybe where, pe where that fragility comes from or where uh, we start to get defensive yeah. about, about this work? Yeah, yeah. And... People code that when they use terms like the real world. Well, who, who, who gets to define what, when the real world you can't, well, what, what does that mean? Um, so I think ultimately what we want is multiculturalism, right. where everybody's culture is respected. And I don't have to disrespect your culture for my culture to be respected and acknowledged by me first. Mm -hmm. And I've always found, my mother taught me this, that excellence um, really makes ignorance and bigotry really difficult and i'm not saying i'm not in, in, in the victim shaming at all but i do believe that insecurity about your own culture makes you overreact to other people's so if we say that african and african-american and indigenous first nation culture is important then our pride and our dignity in that in many ways starts to force other people to do it and when i'm so adamantly against your culture it makes me seem insecure uh, and um like it's a a, a, a subordinate uh, a, a, a a authoritarian subord subordinate relationship and it shouldn't be that way so ultimately acknowledging your culture shouldn't threaten mine because we all have cultures right and multiculturalism should be our objective could not agree more. Uh, you know, most of, of what we've talked about today in the book, you talk about the superiority mindset. Mm -hmm. And we've talked a lot about that uh, throughout the course of the interview. Um, what is the victim mindset? You talk, uh, you, you know, when I, as it, when I read the book, I'm thinking to myself, you know, Anthony let no one off the hook here uh, mm -hmm. in, in yeah. this book. Mm -hmm. So what, what, what is the, the victim mindset and, and, and why is that so important in terms of also contributing to uh, the work necessary in schools? It's just as culpable. Um, nobody can make you feel inferior until you give them permission to do so. And when a person protests too much, it, it's a sign of insecurity. And um, a victim can contribute as much to their own oppression as the victimizer. And I'm not saying that, that, that they're equal. When a person is brutal, they're creating systemic barriers. That's a whole new level of culpability. But I'm talking about in what you can control. Um, communities of color, communities of poverty, every social movement has to have some personal responsibility and obligation. 
You can't expect more from others than you expect from yourself. So I think uh, a lot of the movements of the 1960s, the Black Panthers, protesting that they never thought about what would happen if things actually changed. South Africa experienced a lot of that. They spent so much time protesting apartheid that when they came into power, they had a difficult time governing. Um, So the purpose of protest is that I know that I'm valuable, we're valuable, and we want our place in the sun. My concern, Tom, is that protesting and speaking on racism and other isms has become its own cottage industry. I spoke at a, at a uh, uh, symposium in California on equity, and I told him, this is my third time here, don't invite me back. Either we're gonna do something about it or quit talking about it. And Stokely Carmichael, um, uh, the late leader of the Black Power Movement, said it best. If you want to lynch me, shame on you. If you have the power to lynch me, shame on me. If we're really talking about equity and we're really talking about equality, why would I ever feel like I'm subservient or less than anybody else? I I call them in transforming school culture dangerous synonyms. I hear these synonyms used almost as much in, in, in schools of color as I do in white schools. I hear things like this. Well, you know, Dr. Muhammad, uh, we're a Title I school. For those Canadian listeners, that means there's a poverty level greater than 37%. So they use poverty as a shield for expectations. Right. Well, you know, we have the highest minority population. So you're, you're a person of color making my, being a minority synonymous with low expectations. Nobody should be raising expectations higher for children of color than educators of color, communities of color. If the people in the state capitol want more for you than you do, not shame on them, shame on, shame on us. I brought my children into the world. I have an obligation to give them a place in the sun where their gifts and talents can be appreciated. And if you won't give it to me, I'll take it. When we start acting like equals, and it's not a master-slave relationship, and my pride is apparent at the table, I'm no longer a victim. I'm an, an advocate. I'm an efficacious individual who's demanding my place at the table. That's who people respect. Nobody respects a victim. They might feel sorry for a victim. They might be empathetic for a victim. But you'll never get equality speaking like a victim. And in the book, I highlight the research on learned helplessness. Learned helplessness is a very comfortable position because you can make everybody else responsible for what you go through. Now, if you clean up your own house, now you can go to your neighbors and say, our neighborhood looks bad, can you clean up your house too? But if your house is nasty, you don't have a leg to stand on and encouraging your neighbor. So yes, I I critique very heavily the system, government, white people, (laughs) rich people. (laughs) Uh, But I also put the burden, if you don't want for yourself something better, then how in the heck can you look somebody else in the eye and demand that they want more for you than you want for yourself. So the time of being victims are over. We have a brain, we have, just one little statistic. 
the African-American community last year, just African-American, I'm not even counting Latino, mm -hmm. the purchasing power, the, 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 the earning was $1.6 trillion. That will make if African-Americans were a country, the 12th largest economy in the world. Wow. You mean to tell me we can't build businesses, we can't have political power, we can't demand certain things? You don't find the Asian community in America protesting. They get unified. They build Chinatowns in cities. They, they pull their resources and buy property. They make sure their children are respected. The Jewish community, a very small minority, but very powerful in their influence. A district I worked in used to be heavily Jewish. It became 98% African-American. We were still taking Yom Kippur off. We didn't hardly have any Jews left. That's how powerful the Jewish influence was in Southfield, Michigan. Wow. Anthony, I, I feel like I could talk to you about this for another six hours. And uh, I just, I, you know, I just am fascinated by the depth and breadth of the conversation and, and the, just the wisdom experience and vision that you bring to the conversation. So uh, I, I do thank you for that. I want to finish up today. We're going to, we've, this has been a heavy conversation and, and I do appreciate it. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to lighten some things up a little bit here. Um, each of the interviews, I try to also add something a little fun something where listeners can get to know you a little bit on a personal level, nothing too intrusive, but just a little game called this or that, where I, I'm going to present to you uh, two options and you either pick one of those, or of course you can always go off script and choose a third, but um, I, I'm going to present you five of okay. these and right. just uh, feel free to, to share with the audience a, a little bit about yourself. So the first one is, are you an ask permission person or a beg forgiveness person? Ask permission or beg for forgiveness? Beg for forgiveness. <laughs> I'd, ra I'd rather beg for, for, for forgiveness than ask for permission. And my old superintendent would tell you that. I drove him nuts. <laughs> I had a feeling you might answer it that way. Uh, uh, here's another one. Uh, are you uh, oceans or mountains? Which, uh, oceans. Where, where do you, oceans for sure. How come? No doubt. Yeah. Um, the calming effect of the vastness of the ocean. Yeah. Uh, one of my objectives when I started to be self-employed is I wanted to, to get an oceanfront property. That was kind of one of my big, hairy, audacious goals. Mm -hmm. And finally able to do that on the Pacific Ocean in, yeah. in Mexico, and it's my place of refuge. Wonderful. So I appreciate the mountains, but the ocean is my, my, my calming spot. I, I feel you on that one. Growing up on the West Coast, um, for me, I always feel comfortable when, when I know the ocean is nearby, for sure. Yeah. Uh, are you a morning person or a night owl? Neither. Neither. In the middle of the day. Okay. 10, right up. 10 to 2. 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. Yeah. All my books. Anybody listening has ever read any of my books? They were all written between 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. That's oh, my every, Before and after that, I'm just faking it. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, I've, you know, I've been a morning person for a long time and certainly again, living on the West coast, a lot of the, the action and, and uh, emails come in very early in the morning. So yeah. by two o'clock in the afternoon, I don't hear from anybody. Uh, yeah. TV, TV series or movies. Are you a TV series guy or a movie guy? I'd have to say TV series more. I like both. 
Okay. But any, I, I appreciate a good series. <laughs> any, any uh, favorites you got going on right now? Um, um, into absentia on uh, prime video. Okay. That's really, I was a big fan of the, the show is of power. Mm-hmm. I was a big power fan. Um, um, uh, I love sneaky Pete used to be on. So I like, I like, um, uh, series that are that have a lot of irony involved that you can't it's smart you get you don't see what's coming um there's always a big surprise um yeah, yeah. so i, I I'm, a, I'm more of a series but i love the the, the series the shy on mm-hmm. showtime it's one of my favorite shows so uh i like i like movies but i i appreciate a good series a little more yeah, it seems like a series you get more in-depth and, and follow the characters yeah. a little bit more. Okay, last one. Oh, There's some anticipation, too, because you always wonder what the next show is going to be. Right, right. Yeah. I, I suppose, you know, binge-watching has kind of taken that away a little bit. I remember, some you know, the, back in the day where we used to have to wait a week and we had appointment yeah. viewing and all of that. But right, uh, right. one one final choice here, uh, Michigan or Ohio State? <laughs> you know I had to do it. <laughs> A Michigan State. Yeah, yeah, you know, I know um, that. I know that. Yeah, so for I, listeners I who don't know, uh, uh, Anthony is a Michigan State graduate. I had to do it. Um, my my real question is, uh, which of those teams would you rather see lose? Michigan. Michigan. All day long. All day long. Uh, you know the the old uh, Machiavelli. Uh, the 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 enemy of my enemy is my friend. Is my friend. So yeah. so there's some allegiance with Ohio State because we both hate Michigan equally. <laughs> Um, but it's not close. Um, no. I don't even dislike Ohio State that much. No, I don't like no. them, no. but I, I I despise the University of Michigan yeah. athletically. I don't see good people athletically. <laughs> it's a great institution, but being a former athlete and having that rivalry, uh, it it really yeah. gets down to you to your to your marrow. Track and field, right? Am, am I right yes, about that? Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah. Four hundred meters. 400. Four hundred meters. You got it yeah, right on yeah. the nose. Yeah, good, good. Uh, remind me never to race you. Then uh, uh, I, <laughs> you can beat me. You can beat me now. You might not have beat me back well, then, but you, honestly, you may beat me now. It's probably been a decade since I ran full speed, anyway. So who knows <laughs> what that would All look right. like? Um, one final question, and we're going to get a little serious here again, just in terms of a question I'm asking all as we finish up here in the interview. Um, and and one of the things that I'm trying to do with the podcast is is really talk about success in general, success and happiness, and, and just thinking about everyone that comes on for the interview, asking them this particular question, and I'm interested in your perspective. If a random person stopped you on the street and asked you, what is your definition of success? How would you answer them? Leaving the world a better place in which you left it. That there's some evidence that people's lives are better because you were present. And that could be your own children. It could be a neighbor. It could be a spouse. It could be an entire industry like Rick DeFore. Mm-hmm. And people are still talking about Rick DeFore. He's been, he's been physically deceased for three years. So I think the person who helps the homeless uh, is just as impactful as uh, 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 Bill Gates or uh, 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 Steve Jobs, who revolutionized. Are people's lives better? because you were present. If it was all about you and nobody can say that, you know what? I see my job as a teacher differently now because of Tom Shimmer. That's greater than anything else that I can experience. I I see reality differently. My kids, whoever, somebody, 
could say that my life was better because this person exists. That's success to me. That is a a great, great definition of success. Uh, Listeners, you can follow Anthony on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at newfrontier21. You can also check out his website, which is www.newfrontier21 for resources, articles, and other information about Anthony's work. Um, Anthony, uh, it has been a tremendous pleasure to have you on the podcast, and I look forward to the opportunity of doing this again. I, I think we have much more to talk Absolutely. about, and you will definitely be the person I call upon. So thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. In the news this week, uh, there's a story out of Brownsville, Texas, about first and second year teachers in the remote learning situation that they are in and how they're handling it. And I thought to myself, as I was reading that article, I thought, wow, what an incredible time to begin your career. And I don't necessarily mean that in terms of positivity, of course, but just an unbelievable time to begin your first or second year teaching. We all know how challenging it is to begin teaching anyway, uh, but your first impression of the profession is is teaching during the pandemic. But what was interesting about the article was how there was some reference to some advantages that first and second year teachers may have in terms of the experience that they had as students. Uh, their recent experience maybe gives them a little bit of an advantage, right? So one one teacher talked about uh, you know the fact that there is this silver lining because many of of his classes were online when he was in college. And so being familiar with kind of an online learning experience actually had helped him navigate the remote learning situation. I mean, the first few years of teaching are incredibly overwhelming and, and trying to get used to everything that uh, teaching entails. And, And I can't imagine what it was like or what it is like for teachers now, just trying to navigate this, this whole remote or hybrid learning situation that's happening in so many school districts. But so this teacher talked about his familiarity with the online learning platform was really actually an advantage uh, for him to kind of understand the experience as a student and therefore to create that as a teacher. Um, There's also references in the story that this particular school district in Brownsville was already trying to make some inroads with creating some online platforms or some online courses, already trying to implement some of that last year. And so that really has helped them just, you know, not just reinvent, but they've just been able to accelerate some of that work. I've seen a lot of stories like that over over the last six months or so where there are many states and, and places where, uh, in particularly in reference to snow days and how many school districts build snow days into their to their calendars and moving to an online platform was already a goal in so many places to try to navigate the loss of those school days and how you know the snow day was interfering with their ability to keep some you know cohesion with the with the learning experience and so I think what you've got is a situation where we can really authentically take advantage of people's experiences as students and first and second year teachers uh, can begin to help shape what some of that learning looks like in terms of the online platform. And again, certainly uh, planning for the the snow days and and the loss of instruction, uh, you know, you've seen stories where we talk about Maybe the snow day is over. Maybe maybe the fact is that when schools need to shut down for weather or any other sort of uh, natural experience, uh, these online platforms may be a small silver lining out of, of what's coming uh, out of the pandemic. One PE teacher talked about the, 
the positive part of parent participation in terms of participating with their children in terms of the activities. And of course, parent participation can be both a positive and a drawback depending on how involved the parents are. And, and, but, it, but at its best, parental involvement is always something that we should, should be celebrating. You know, the word that emerged in that story that was just continually being brought up by a number of teachers who were talking was about the, the importance of flexibility and understanding. Uh, just understanding that all students are dealing with, with different circumstances, different levels of access, different levels of parent support. Uh, every, everything about it is something where being flexible and being understanding of where students are in this circumstance and that's why when I see other stories out there about just being so definitive and, and, and almost militant about, you know, online cameras on, all the, all the stuff that just seems on the periphery to be um, just lacking some of that understanding and that flexibility. New teachers are in a unique position right now because I think for the first time in my career, I'm seeing a real opportunity, an authentic opportunity for first and second year teachers to actually emerge with some leadership in a staff because it's tough for a first year teacher or first few years teachers. It's it's tough for young teachers, new teachers to earn the respect of their more veteran colleagues. Now that's not a that's not a shot at the veteran colleagues. We just know that you can't buy experience and how important experience is in this profession. But now with first and second year teachers or new teachers being able to provide some authentic leadership in the areas of remote learning or hybrid learning or understanding different platforms, it really is a unique opportunity for those teachers to emerge with some real authentic respect from their veteran colleagues. And it may, in the long run, go a long way into pulling a staff even more closer together than maybe could have originally been anticipated. Our second story is actually out of England, where there is this ongoing debate about the black history curriculum. And the story from The Guardian, where they interviewed four black educators, uh, two who are currently uh, heads of the history departments at their schools, one former teacher, now current consultant, and one professor at the University of Manchester. And it was really interesting because, as you know, so many schools and school districts across North America are also having these conversations, whether it be about being more inclusive and transparent about our histories with indigenous people, um, histories with black people. Uh, the, the, the books are sort of being opened, if you will, and we're starting to have these conversations everywhere. And it caught my attention that this conversation is also happening in, in England. Uh, and I think it shouldn't surprise any of us because it's happening everywhere because of where we are in society. So I'm going to share with you a few of the comments that were made because I thought I thought there were some very interesting perspectives. They didn't all necessarily agree on the approach that should be taken, but I found them to be quite thoughtful and 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 very interesting to sort of read their their comments. The first teacher is Fanmaloa Stewart, who is a head of history at a school called Dixon's Trinity Academy. And what I thought was interesting about her comments was that while teaching the slave trade and the civil rights movement is critical to understanding black history, she felt it just wasn't enough to only sort of teach it through the lens of those matters, that, that there are 
many positive aspects of black history that need to be taught. She talks about the African kingdoms and and how lucrative they were. Uh, She talks a lot about educating that, you know, making sure that students understand that black history didn't begin with slavery and that black people were not just simply people lacking agency uh, who were, you know, whose existence, she says, and their relevance depends on the influence of white Europeans. So I thought that was an interesting perspective for sure. And One of the most important comments I think she made was that, and I'll quote her here in the article, quote, that throughout every period of history, there's always at least one group of people who are marginalized and treated badly. If we teach that, students can make that comparison with what is going on today, end quote. So I thought that was a a really interesting way to help uh, students and everyone understand a little bit of being able to look at society. There's always that sort of cliche that those who don't know their history are doomed to repeat it which I think there is some truth to that. And I, I do think there are cycles that we can analyze and look at, which I think are quite fascinating. The second teacher, Emily Fullerunshu, who is the head of history at Barking Abbey School, uh, she was talking about how it's important to make black history mandatory because there are many places that may, she suggests that there are many places that may choose not to teach it uh, if they live in predominantly uh, white areas, white uh, cities or or what have you. And I thought one of the points she made very interesting to look at it from this perspective, her her point was that nothing needs to be removed from the history curriculum to fit in black history. Black experiences can be integrated and woven in. So she she talked a little bit about how these are not separate silos and how it's important to understand that that Black people have been in England. Her point was black people have been in England since Roman times. They didn't just appear in 1948. She also talked a lot about the importance of teaching pre-colonial African history and that students can see that Africa was underdeveloped due to slavery and colonialism and that this whole idea that race was constructed and why race was constructed to sort of justify Britain's economic gains. So I thought that was a really interesting take as well about how important it is to to just be a little more open and honest and and sort of take a more three 360 degree view of black history. The third educator is Calvin Robinson, who is a education consultant and former teacher. And he took a slightly different approach uh, than the other two, uh, talking about the importance of just teaching historical events, not teaching history based on race. And one of the things that, that caught my attention from his comments in the article was that, quote, for many people, the color of their skin is an insignificant part of their identity. And the more we emphasize that and make it a thing, the more we stoke up racism where it didn't exist to begin with, end quote. So obviously a different perspective on that, talking about how uh, folks don't necessarily identify by the color of their skin. And he goes on to talk about the fact that from his perspective, and this is again quoting him in the article, we live in a very tolerant, diverse, inclusive nation. We've made a lot of progress, and although we still have a lot to do, we should celebrate the progress we have made. So again, different perspectives on what should be done to revamp the curriculum, whether it should be revamped, and whether or not history can be taught in that sort of open and honest view. The final educator contributing to this article was David Alasoga, who is a 
a professor of public history at the University of Manchester and the author of the book Black and British. And he was talking in his contribution about there being more British history. So he talked about how British history does include black history because for, from his perspective, what we're calling black history is British history. And I'll quote him here when he says, quote, and I don't see how you can have a full, comprehensive, and honest telling of British history without just bumping into the aspects of the British story that involve our interactions with people of African heritage and the African heritage itself. It should be unavoidable, end quote. So his frustration with where the British curriculum was stems from the fact that probably he, from his perspective, more children in Britain have learned more about the Montgomery, uh, Alabama bus boycotts of 1955, but many have never heard of the Bristol bus boycott, which took place in 1963. So I think from his perspective, he's talking about the importance of making sure that, that there's British history and that we're not mixing or that they're not mixing this idea of British history and being what he says, obsessed with American history at the expense of Britain's history. And he finally points out this the linkages between historical events and et cetera have have sort of taken mainstream history and black history and siloed them when it is in fact all british history so a really interesting debate in england about what to do with the history curriculum to teach black history separately to make sure it's a more uh, integrated part of the the curriculum this debate, of course, is far from over, and it's interesting that it is a debate. And we know that across Canada, there's many conversations about how to be more inclusive uh, about our history with Indigenous people, Black people. We know in the United States that conversation is happening a lot. I don't necessarily know where this conversation is going to end, but it really should begin with just telling the truth. I mean, I think that one of the things that we would look toward in terms of history is just tell the truth about what happened. Now, again, some might debate like whose truth and what's the interpretation of that. And obviously, as time passes, there's interpretations of historical events tend to evolve. I had a history professor who once said that history doesn't begin until 100 years after an event. And his angle on that was the fact that until a hundred years have passed, you're always going to have people who have a bias. You're always going to have people who have a sort of primary account of the event, and therefore that bias will shine through and they will sort of skew the world's view of a particular event. So that was kind of uh, his take was that until we have a hundred years passing that, uh, you know, there'll be real analysis that happens in history and that you can get to some of that truth. So when we think about going back you know, centuries, we obviously have a very uh, objective view of it, but we know that these conversations about race and curriculum stoke up a lot of, uh, you know, confrontation, debate. Uh, they stoke up a lot of uh, sort of historical feelings about what should or should not be taught to our children. And, and so it'll be interesting to see where this goes. But to me, it just feels like it's time for us to just be honest about events, to just be honest about how people were treated and be able to fully appreciate then the growth, even though there's a lot of mistakes that were made and there's a long way to go, 
we have to be able to appreciate the growth that our societies have made as well. So I think there's some balance there. Uh, but what we, what I do know is that as we sit here in 2020, at least from my perspective, the the whitewashed history that I was taught and the whitewashed history that was taught to many of our, our students uh, has contributed significantly to why we are where we are today and to why these conversations are so necessary. Let's move to Assessment Corner. And as a reminder, listeners, you can always send your questions or your topics. They don't have to be questions. Maybe there's a topic that you want me to address or you know, expand on or something you've been talking about with your colleagues and you want a perspective on that. So send those, either email them to me, that's tomshimmerpod at gmail.com, or you can tweet me at the show's Twitter handle, that's at tomshimmerpod. This week, we've got a question from Phil from Vancouver asking about finals. He said uh, he's noticed that many schools are decreasing both the weight and importance and the number of finals and wondering if a change in philosophy is required and kind of what's the purpose. You know, this is a question that I get actually quite a bit, uh, especially when I'm working with high schools, of course, talking about, you know, what's the role of exams and, and, and how does that play out in our schools? You know, exams seem to be one of these things that are overly romanticized in our system, and they certainly get a disproportionate amount of attention uh, in, you know, movies and television about school. You know, there's always the protagonist who's been struggling all year, but it's been super quiet in class, and uh, nobody really knows him or her, and, you know, they don't, no one gets them. And, and then at the end, you know, end of, near the end of the movie, they're, they're in the gym with 4,000 other students during the exam period, and, and they have this breakthrough, and they produce this epic analysis uh, or some new theory that would uh, put Einstein to shame or something like that. So we have this sort of, I don't know, uh, romanticized view of, of the exam period in many ways, and that kind of gets perpetuated in the, uh, in, in the media. Uh, there's, there's a few things that I will say about exams, and I think that you know, there's the, the one thing is to say, do we still have an exam period? And then the second question would be, well, what's the purpose of that exam period? So there's a couple things that I think we have to think about and get out of the way first. And that is, the first one is, if your rationale uh, for having finals is just to hold something over the students' heads, then basically you're using finals as leverage. So using finals as leverage out. The, the idea that we're just using this exam to to kind of a carrot and stick approach uh, in, in school, to me is just, it, it, it completely misses the mark. Uh, the other thing that I think is becoming more and more difficult with the exam period is the idea that you, you sort of cover the entire class. Like the idea that you could even adequately sample a semester's worth of learning in a two to three hour window is kind of ridiculous uh, given how sophisticated the learning goals are today. Um, and, and even decades ago where you're just, it's almost like this game of trivia. Like, I wonder what the teacher's going to ask me. And I, you know, I fill in these, these massive bubble sheets and, and that just becomes this, this task as opposed to a learning experience. And the other part that I think is really important to consider is the rethinking of the kind of, you know, old school tournament bracket where, you know, exams counted for 20 or 40% of someone's grade and, we kind of like, here's the first semester bracketed with the second semester. And when that's combined, it's worth 80% and then the final's worth 20 or it's worth 60% and the final's worth 40. Uh, I think it's time to put that to bed. 
I think that that whole approach to finals for me would would just it's again it's just we have to look at things closely and ask ourselves is this just what we've always done or like is there any relevance to today or is this just kind of we've we've continued to do what we've always done even though the learning goals the standards the outcomes the competencies are becoming increasingly sophisticated we can't carry on with the same model. Now, with all of that said, I think there can still be a place for exams, but it requires schools, teachers, jurisdictions, states, provinces to kind of rethink and reimagine what that exam period might look like. Um, I think we have to stop trying to cover an entire course. Because of the sophistication of learning goals these days, I just don't think it's feasible or even possible for one sort of sitting or one sort of traditional kind of exam to cover an entire course. And I think we should just stop trying to do that. Uh, I think that it's unnecessary and doesn't really provide a kind of meaningful experience. And I think that's one of the things to look toward is how can we satisfy the need of some culminating activity, but at the same time, maybe try to make it a more meaningful experience for the students. So there are a number of different options that you can think about, but I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna talk about two. And I think there are two fairly meaningful uh, opportunities for you to reimagine what exams might look like. The first might be just to say that the exam is yet another opportunity for the students to demonstrate their proficiency with the highest priority learning outcomes or standards or competencies. So schools that prioritize their standards and realize that you know, there are some learning goals that are, are more important and, and carry more significance than others. Now, when we prioritize standards, of course, what we're not saying as teachers is we're, we're not saying that some standards or outcomes don't matter. What we are saying is that during the course of a school year, if we run into a time where we need more time to help students reach proficiency with, with certain standards or outcomes, then we have to draw those minutes from somewhere, right? So the minutes are the minutes. And so if we have a plan and we need an extra week and a half or two weeks to help more students reach proficiency, we make that instructional decision. We would be wise to ahead of time have prioritized our standards. So across the grade level or subject area or whatever the case might be, all teachers are making similar decisions so that going into the following school year, we can put together a plan that helps us address that which might not have been covered in the previous year. So I think one of the mis misunderstandings about prioritizing standards is that it's just sort of a, a culling of the standards and we're just saying these ones don't matter. And I just don't think that's what we're really after. What we're saying is uh, he, when push comes to shove, we're going to spend more of our instructional time on these standards. Okay, so let's get back to the exam. So the exam period could be you know, another opportunity for students to show their proficiency with those prioritized standards, right? And right now, as we sit here in the 2020-2021 school year, the prioritization is probably going to have to happen again because, you know, especially for schools, well, even in face-to-face -face models, because there's a difference in what that experience looks like, but certainly in hybrid models or online models, remote learning models, et cetera, you're just not going to cover, you're just not going to be able to cover as much as, as you were able to. So again, a, a prioritization of your priorities may be in order. But with all of that, we just say, okay, maybe the exam is another opportunity for students to show you know, proficiency with our highest priority standards. 
why is that helpful? Well, if that comes at the end of the semester or that comes at the end of the year, you are definitely getting another opportunity and you're, you're, you're sort of getting the most recent evidence of where that learner is. So focusing on priorities or maybe some big ideas, maybe it's an opportunity for students to synthesize big ideas and begin to produce something original or something like that. So again, you can have finals, but I think it needs to be reimagined away from the, you know, here's a stapled packet of, of 35 pages and eight bubble sheets that you have to fill in. If we can, if we can reimagine what that might look like and, and the types of questions that we're asking or the types of problems that we present to students so that they can start to dig deeper into the learning versus this sort of superficiality of trying to guess the pattern of the bubble sheets when they're answering multiple choice questions. Now, I know some might say, well, Tom, isn't there an advantage to students in high school taking exams that way? Because in college and university, they they would you know have to take multiple choice questions and, and things like that. Sure, uh, there is some advantage to that for sure. I wouldn't dismiss the notion of, of familiarity with the format of the test, but students don't need years of that. And during the school year, you can also, as a teacher, when you're at those knowledge level or those DOK1 questions where you're kind of building the foundation, that's where multiple choice would be really helpful, right? So that could be a really good place to do that if you're concerned about familiarity. But years and years and years of test practice is not necessarily going to uh, help me do uh, you know, better or an improved performance on my finals. What's actually going to help me uh, perform at a higher level on my finals is having a deep understanding of the material. So I think there are limits to that idea of, you know, test prep just doesn't get a lot of support in the academic literature. But I do think there is something to say about familiarity of format and how to approach questions and things like that. But I think we way overdo that. So the one choice would be, let's reimagine the exam to be uh, only of our highest priority standards. And let's give you know, students an opportunity to show us the more recent understanding, the more, more recent evidence. The other possibility is to really take that sort of finals, and I'm using air quotes, but take that final and turn it into a capstone project. Now that could be a project that the students were working on all semester. So they, you know, as they get into a semester or a year, they identify a deeper question of curiosity and sort of running parallel to the learning that's happening during the school year, you have the students working on this kind of capstone project that isn't trying to cover the whole course, but is an area of interest where they're going to do deep, to go deeper, right? So we either go wide or we go deep. I don't know that we can do both in that sort of finite period of time. So I think we favor going deeper and almost students almost specializing in a particular aspect of the learning that's been happening during that semester. It could also, so, so that's one opportunity, right? So you've got this capstone project and maybe that capstone project is presented during the exam period where teachers and maybe other teachers can consume the projects or maybe those projects have some overlap between uh, different subject areas where we can start to synthesize those together. Again, we're only limited by our imagination. You know, we, we just have to think about what is the purpose of that exam or is there a different purpose that we could fulfill? The other thing we could do, and I heard about this when I was working in Michigan one time. I had a, a teacher come up to me at, during the break of one of the uh, workshops I was doing, and she came up to me and we were talking about exams. It happened to come up in this workshop about grading, 
And she came up to me and said that her son had just come back from the university. I, I, I can't remember what university it was. I, I believe it was Michigan State, but I don't quote me on that. But she described the experience of going through the scholarship, um, what they call the scholarship exam. And it wasn't anything like a scholarship exam. What they did uh, is they brought all of the students to like a big sort of classroom or ballroom or whatever the case might be. And they divided the students into groups, small groups. I think they were groups of about five or six students in each of the groups. So all the scholarship candidates were there. They divided them into these, uh, these groups. They put them at these tables and in the middle of the table was uh, a problem, you know, a sophisticated problem. They had access to resources. They had access to technology. They had access to, you know, whatever they needed. And basically the, the, the facilitators of that experience basically told the students, there's a problem in the middle of the table. You and your team have three hours to solve this problem. And essentially all of the adjudicators stood on the outside walls of the room and just watched the students work in this collaborative team and begin to sort of, you know, watch them problem solve, watch them work together, watch them think together, how resourceful are they, and the whole gamut. And I just thought, what a great way to reimagine that whole experience. And so you could still have the structures of finals or still have the structures of that period of time during the semester but using our imagination to and and wonderment about what could that experience look like so while i'm not a a big proponent or defender of finals if you will i do think there's some great opportunities for us to reimagine what that period might look like and everything that i've sort of described i think would make that a more meaningful experience for the students. So I think reimagining those finals, is there a place for finals, Phil asked. I think I think so. But then the other question was, would it require a change in philosophy? What's the purpose? My answer to that, of course, is absolutely. We can change the purpose of what that, that experience is all about and definitely make it more deeply connected to learning and more relevant to the students themselves. In Tweets of the Week this week, I want to begin with uh, Dina Simmons, who is at Dina Simmons, both on Instagram and Twitter, and recently caught a post from her, and I'm going to read you the, the post, and it really is a quote from an article that she wrote for ASCD in-service back in June, and the quote is as follows, quote, we cannot trauma inform away racism. We cannot tweet away racism. We cannot read away racism. We cannot intervention away racism. We cannot deep breathe away racism, end quote. And what Dean is really getting at there is the fact that we have to roll up our sleeves and do the work. She is a fabulous follow, both on Twitter and on Instagram. Um, again, thought-provoking, uh, intellectual, deep, you name it. Uh, just cannot recommend enough to follow Dina on either social platform. I think you'll be very inspired, you'll be very challenged, and it will help all of us. Following her helps all of us just continue to do better in terms of what's necessary to bring about equity, true equity, both in our schools and in society. My second follow for you is to follow Leanne Young on Twitter. 
Uh, Leanne is the CEO of Lead Inclusion. She's a clinical professor. She's an author. She's a consultant. She's an expert in assessment and grading. And uh, she's my good friend. So really would encourage you to follow her. Uh, her Twitter handle is at Leanne Young. So it's L-E-E-A-N-N-J-U-N-G. And a recent tweet from Leanne caught my attention. And I'll read it to you. She talked about how intervention strategies aren't plug and play. They must carefully individualize to give students engagement, optimism, confidence, curiosity, and a joy in learning. The Lead Inclusion Organization is a, an organization, according to their mission statement, that's designed to assist schools and develop, to develop individualized and personalized goal setting, research-based interventions, and support, and assessment and grading of learning and behavior. So uh, Leanne's content is deep, it's insightful, and certainly, if you're looking to follow somebody who is maybe one of the world's leading experts in supporting students with unique needs, um, she's someone you should pay attention to. So again, it's at Leanne Young on Twitter. You won't be disappointed with what she sends out. Okay, that's all we have time for today. Uh, just a couple of reminders. The two-day training for my book, Grading from the Inside Out, is going virtual this fall, both November 9th and 10th as well as December 10th and 11th. The two-day workshop on standards-based learning in action, that's the book I co-authored with Garnet Hillman and Mandy Stalitz. Well, Garnet's going to be leading the virtual workshop on that book, October 26th and 27th. So all the information about those workshops can be found on the solutiontree.com website. Remember to follow the podcast Twitter account for updates. That's at Tom Shimmer Pod. My personal Twitter handle is at Tom Shimmer, so you can always reach out with your feedback or comments or suggestions. And also, please email your questions or topics for Assessment Corner to tomshimmerpod at gmail.com. Next week, my guest is going to be my dear friend and colleague, Nicole Dimich, who's going to talk about her nonprofit, Thrive Ed, out of Minneapolis, where they are reinventing school and empowering students. So you don't want to miss that. And again, thanks for joining me this week. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review the podcast, and as always, maybe even spread the word. I would really, really appreciate that. Have a great week, everyone. 